We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Coming up, I'm going to talk about the education of entrepreneur Bill Ackman. This is the guy leading the crusade against the hollow leadership of top universities. I'll talk about the backlash this has provoked against his family. I'm going to ask whether Jeffrey Epstein was himself a pawn of intelligence agencies setting up an international blackmail operation. And attorney Mike Davis joins me. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court and the Colorado attempt to remove Trump from the 2024 ballot. If you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. This uh, podcast is um, thumbnailed, the education of Bill Ackman. Now, who is Bill Ackman? He's an entrepreneur, very successful guy with connections both to Harvard and MIT. He's uh, married to a former MIT scholar, a um, woman uh, named um, Neri uh, Oxman. And um, Bill Ackman is somebody who was kind of going about his ordinary life when the Hamas attacks occurred. He's Jewish. His wife is Israeli, Jewish. And, uh, he was, um, he realized something big is going on. And then he noticed the pro Hamas propaganda in the universities being promoted at the highest level, including university presidents. And so Bill Ackman tried in his own way to influence places like Harvard and MIT to like tone it down, you know, offer you, you keep talking about protecting minorities. Well, why aren't you protecting the Jews? Uh, you keep talking about, um, about the fact that you have to restrict the speech of people who are hateful toward blacks or toward homosexuals. Well, what about people calling for genocide against the Jews? And then, of course, you have the three Harvard, the Harvard, the MIT, and the Penn president appear before Congress, and they're asked a straightforward question, which is, is calling for Jewish genocide against your uh, harassment policies and, and all three of them are reluctant to answer. Well, it depends on the context and so on. So Ackman with his kind of instinct for not just hypocrisy, but deep deception realizes, you know what? There's a real corruption at the top rank of American universities. And so he begins a crusade to sort of get rid of Claudine Gay, of Liz McGill, and of the woman named Kornbluth, who is the president of MIT. Now, the Ackman crusade is, is successful against Liz McGill. She steps down. 
And uh, but it's not successful by itself against Claudine Gay until the plagiarism allegations surface. And then Bill Ackman jumps on the plagiarism accusations and the combined force of the anti-Semitism scandal and the plagiarism scandal. And then bye bye, Claudine Gay. But and now here's the point I'm really getting at. This is a problem that is not confined to Harvard or Penn or MIT. We are talking about the entrenchment of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion at pretty much all the major universities. So it's, it's a very powerful force and it's not just in the university. It's outside the university as well. So the empire, the DEI empire was bound to strike back and, and now they have. They're accusing Bill Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, of plagiarism. Now, wait, um, the plagiarism alleged against her is plagiarism, uh, at least a number of the examples, from Wikipedia, <laughs> from Wikipedia. So when I first saw that, I actually started laughing because I was just laughing at the absurdity of the concept. Who would plagiarize from Wikipedia? It's like stealing from a garbage dump. <laughs> Wikipedia itself is ridiculous. It's unbelievably biased. It's unreliable. It's a place for launching vendettas. And if you doubt it, just look up three people. Look up Bill Ackman. Look up Elon Musk. And look look up me. And you will see the most prejudiced. It's like our worst enemies wrote our Wikipedia description. So Wikipedia is not to be trusted. In fact, in many colleges, you're not even allowed to use Wikipedia because it's so notoriously unreliable. It's not in an authoritative source, even though it's got a, a pedia as if it's some sort of encyclopedia. It's not. Anyway, um, the point about this is that this was clearly an attempt to retaliate against Bill Ackman because think about it. Neri Oxman's not running for president of Harvard. Claudine Gay was the president of Harvard. So isn't it the case that that the president of Harvard University cannot be a serial plagiarist? But as for Neri Oxman, she's left academia. She's in the private sector. She's basically making uh, running a company that produces computer designs and other types of entrepreneurial stuff. So Bill Ackman rightly concluded that they're going after his wife. And he goes, they're going after his wife to get at him. Now, uh, Ackman uh, has a very kind of almost a poignant tweet where he talks about the rules of the road. He goes, the code of the road was that you can attack the protagonist as much as you want, but not his wife and kids. And I would add that this is a principle, by the way, that is in general even respected by the mafia. I don't know if you've seen the film Scarface, where where uh, Al Pacino is asked to kill this guy, and he's very willing to do it. But then he notices that the guy comes out, and he's accompanied by his wife and their small daughter, and Al Pacino goes, uh, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not killing the wife and kids. And this ultimately ends in Al Pacino's own death in the movie uh, because of the code. And the code is that we don't go after the family. And so here's Bill Ackman invoking the code. But I see what's happening with Bill Ackman here is he's realizing that for the left, there is no code. They don't care. The principle of cultural Marxism is that you ruin people any which way you can. Go read Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. He talks about this. He basically says, listen, if you, if you can avoid using a sleazy and dishonest personal attack, you should do it. But if you can't avoid it, 
Use it. Go ahead and use the attack. The main thing is that the ends justify the means. The goal is to bring the person down. Now, to Bill Ackman's credit, he is not backing down. You might think that he goes, oh, you know what? I've had such a good life. I'm a very successful guy. I'm a billionaire. Uh, I married this beautiful woman. So you know what? I'm just going to back off. Instead, Bill Ackman goes, guess what? I'm going to now commission a plagiarism review of everybody at MIT, all the faculty and the president, and I'm going to commission a plagiarism review of all the staffers at Business Insider, the journal that approached him about the plagiarism of his wife. Now, Business Insider is not smart enough to find this plagiarism. What often happens, and this is kind of the way the media is, we think of the media, they're digging, they're investigative reporting nonsense. A lot of times what happens is when you with a guy like Ackman, he's going after the president of MIT. And he's also going after, by the way, the chairman of the board, who seems to have been engaged in some sort of shady uh, tax avoidance practices. At least this is what Ackman alleges. Uh, and so MIT is hitting back. And it's they probably asked or might have commissioned one of their researchers or maybe the researcher on his own goes, listen, I'm going to find some stuff. Nary Oxman was here at MIT. Let me see if I can run an AI, an artificial intelligence search, identify some plagiarism. I'll then leak it to businesses. So business insiders doing no research. This is handed to them on a platter and Business Insider becomes the vehicle for a vendetta that people at MIT are launching against Bill Ackman. So Bill Ackman, who knows this, goes, guess what? I'm going to turn the tables on you. And this is, by the way, a theme that that I like to talk about and I'm going to I like to ask others about, which is fighting fire with fire, that it's important to treat the left the way they treat us. They don't expect it. And in fact, they get kind of outraged when you suggest that you're going to do it. But Bill Ackman is doing it. Now, this morning, I noticed that um, that somebody has looked at Bill Ackman's foundation and seen that he gives money to a number of left-wing groups, groups like Planned Parenthood and so on. And so the point that's been raised by some conservatives on social media is, hey, Bill, listen, don't fund the very forces that hate you and hate America and hate the free market. So be aware. And, and then Bill Ackman, to his credit, responds and goes, hey, listen, I need to look into this because I was not aware that through my foundation, it's called the Pershing Square Foundation, I'm giving money to groups that are on the other side. I mean, this is the... This is what we're realizing. American culture is divided into two distinct camps. And there is a radical left that will use every weapon in its arsenal against us. Um, Bill Ackman, I think, is somebody who has been slowly, almost unwillingly educated about the nature of these awful people. And he, the good thing is that he is a guy with a spine. He's not an invertebrate like so many Republicans. He's a tough guy and he has tremendous resources at his disposal. And so my, um, my, um, exhortation to Bill Ackman is, Bill, welcome to the fight. You realize, I think you're realizing that it's a bigger fight than you even thought, but you are temperamentally, you are in every way perfectly suited to fight this. You are in, in that sense, uh, doing the same thing that Elon Musk and so many others are doing. Uh, you're recognizing that within our society, there are illiberal forces that hate our way of life and are doing everything that they can to destroy America and to destroy us. 
My name is Mark Lichtenfeld, best-selling author of Get Rich with Dividends and chief income strategist at the Oxford Club, one of the world's largest and most prominent financial firms where over 250,000 readers receive my insights each week. I believe we're entering the greatest oil bull market since the 1970s. That's why I'm so excited to share this special oil and gas investment with you today. I've discovered an unusual way to potentially bank massive income from the oil and gas surge 100% outside the stock market. Oil and gas royalties are a backdoor way to get paid over and over again, and you can get into a top royalty stream for just $25. This is your chance to get the income you need to truly enjoy life. Simply because you made the decision to give the Oxford Income Letter a risk-free try today. But this opportunity won't last forever. To learn more about Mark Lichtenfeld's unusual approach to generating monthly income from the oil markets, please visit oilpayday.com. That's oilpayday.com. Paid for by the Oxford Club. Do you know how amazing it is to be able to hear a conversation for the first time in years? That's the beauty of the hearing aid. And we've had the pleasure of witnessing MD hearing aids ability to help people we love, both my mother-in-law and her caregiver, wear them and love them. They also love how small and discreet they are. MD Hearing is an FDA-registered rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. MD Hearing's brand new XS model costs over 90% less than clinic hearing aids. MD Hearing was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid anyone could afford. MD Hearing has sold over a million and a half hearing aids and they offer for a 45-day risk-free trial with a 100% money-back guarantee so you can buy with confidence. So if you want MD Hearing's smallest hearing aid ever, go to shopmdhearing.com, shopmdhearing.com, use promo code Dinesh, you'll get the new hearing aid for just $397 when you buy a pair. Again, that's shopmdhearing.com, use promo code Dinesh to get the new hearing aid for $397 when you buy a pair offer. I want to talk somewhat briefly about the Epstein files, the release of these Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, names of people who um, were associated with him or went to his island. Very powerful people. And uh, I also want to reflect upon the fact that how did this guy escape prosecution for so long? Who protected him? How did that really happen? Because you had, um, what was it, Amy Roach, the uh, Amy, Amy Robach, what's the name of the, uh, Amy Robach, the ABC reporter. We had the story on Epstein and uh, it got squelched. Now, I think she also mentioned in that exchange Bill Clinton, and it could be that that is one explanation for how these things happen. Is it the power of the Clintons? But it can't just be the power of the Clintons. Why? Because here you have the Epstein case. It develops in Florida. And uh, the prosecutor in Florida is this guy, Acosta. And Acosta is not really a Clinton guy. In fact, he was Trump's labor secretary. And yet Acosta gives Epstein a sweetheart deal in which he uh, essentially gets... 
an agreement not to be prosecuted on a whole host of offenses, including some future offenses. And all his co-conspirators get off scot-free. And Epstein himself does a very short term in prison. And in much of that term, he's getting food delivered to him. He's getting the VIP treatment. He's allowed to leave uh, and, 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 quote, go work for 12 hours a day. So this is a joke. It's a kind of an, uh, there's no, he's not really serving any type of... So who, the point I want to get at is, who has this kind of power? And is even Acosta just a corrupt or just an ineffective official who goes, I'm going to give this guy a break? That doesn't make any sense. It seems to me that there were people higher up, very high up, maybe at the highest levels. And, and we see from the Epstein list, even the small lists that we have, that we're talking about powerful people in government and outside of government, powerful people in the legal community, in the scientific community, in the Hollywood community, uh, and also public officials. Uh, so something very bad is happening at the highest levels of government. Now, um, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, his name is not in the Epstein list. He was not, I'm not suggesting he was at Lolita Island. But let's look at Joe Biden for a moment, because in the Hunter Biden laptop, we see that Hunter Biden refers to his dad as Pedo Pete. That's his nickname for him. Think about this. A son is nicknaming his own father to be a pedophile. That's his nickname for Joe Biden, Pedo Pete. Why would a son do that? If there was no truth to it, why would he come up with something like that? And let's remember, this isn't just a case of Hunter Biden. It's not just a whimsical, you know, this is a way I kind of get get you. And even if it were a whimsical, this is the way I get you. I'm going to get you only because there's some truth to it. Otherwise, you're not going to use that particular way of getting someone. And then there's Ashley Biden, who observes in her diary that uh, she would have to hide to take a shower and this is when she's actually approaching, she's, she's of an age where she should not, she should be showering alone because her dad might jump in the shower with her. Wow. So you have Hunter Biden, you've got Ashley Biden. So Joe Biden basically is a sicko. I wouldn't, I don't know if he's a pedophile in the strict term, but you see him pawing all these young girls. It's extremely inappropriate. And, and I only say this because this phenomenon, which by the way, I would have thought would be historically kind of rare. You just have, I mean, you think of a pedophile as some guy, you know, kind of lurking outside a little girl's school. Uh, you don't think of it as being, uh, people at the top levels of American society and American government. But I think we have to face the regrettable truth that there are. There is a powerful network, and it's possible that they're connected to each other. I mean, this was really what Jeffrey Epstein did, is he brought these people together. And then a separate question that's been raised, which we don't know the answer to, is was Epstein himself running this blackmail ring just for himself? So I, Epstein, can, you know, have all this control over people? Or was it at the behest of intelligence agencies, either in the United States or even elsewhere, that were steering Epstein in this way? Why? So that they have the blackmail power over the top ranks of American society. They have a blackmail ring that stretches into the entertainment sector, the legal sector, the academic sector, 
and the political sector. I think there's so much. We feel like we know more now about uh, what happened with Jeffrey Epstein, Gillen Maxwell, and that whole evil and corrupt circle. But I think that there's a lot more, by the way, including how Jeffrey Epstein died. There's a lot more that we just don't know. Are you ready to lose weight but not sure where to start? I understand. Debbie and I were right there where you are a year ago. Let me tell you why we chose PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition and why I recommend their program so highly. First, Dr. Ashley Lucas has her PhD in Chronic Disease and Sports Nutrition. Her program is based on years of research and is science-based. Second, the PhD program starts with nutrition, but it's so much more. They know that 90% of permanent change comes from the mind, and they work on eliminating the reason you gain this weight in the first place. There are no shortcuts, no pills, no injections, just solid science-based nutrition and behavior change. And finally, probably most importantly, the result. I lost 27 pounds, Debbie 24. Hey, we haven't gained the weight back. That's because PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition has a lifelong maintenance program. So if you're ready to lose weight, keep it off. Call 864-644-1900 to get started. Or you can go online at myphdweightloss.com. Do what I did. Do what hundreds of my listeners have done and call today. That's 864-644-1900. As you know, my friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of our lives. He didn't just stop by creating the best pillow. He also created the Giza Dream bed sheets. I love them. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but also very durable. Mike's Giza sheets come with a 60-day money-back guarantee. 10-year warranty. They come in a variety of sizes and colors. And Mike's latest deal, a really good one for a limited time, you get 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets. You can get a set for as low as $29.98. Go to MyPillow.com. There you find not just this great offer, but deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, the MyPillow mattress topper, the kitchen towel sets, the flannel sheets, and so much more. Here's the number to call, 800-876-0227. Again, it's 800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com to get the discount. You need to use the promo code. It's D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. I've been following, guys, the work of attorney Mike Davis on social media for some time now, and I've been impressed by his insightful analyses. I thought, God, i got to get this guy on the podcast, and here he is, Mike Davis, founder and president of the Internet Accountability Project, the Article 3 Project, and the Unsilenced Majority. Uh, his website, mikedavis.substack.com. Mike, thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm really glad to have some legal expertise in talking about these Trump cases. And I'd like to begin with the, with the Colorado case. Um, the Supreme Court has granted cert and is going to be taking up the case, I guess, early next month. Uh, can you, uh, let's begin by talking about what's going to happen. Will the Supreme Court be hearing, um, briefs from each side? Uh, are they going to make a presentation before the court third, the typical 30 minutes and then the court ask questions? What's going to happen in early February? Yeah, so the court's going to take this case for oral argument and a decision on the merits. The Democrats impeached President Trump twice for nonsense. They indicted him four times for non-crimes. They've illegally gagged him. 
in two of these court cases, and that, uh, they're trying to bankrupt his business for non-fraud. That all backfired. Trump is not beating Biden like a drum for November 5th, 2024. So Democrats have thrown their legal Hail Mary. They have dusted off this 155-year-old provision from the Constitution passed after the Civil War to keep out of office those who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against uh, dur- against the Union during the Civil War. The Democrats are trying to say that January 6th was comparable to the Civil War. It was an insurrection against the United States, which which is just laughable. How many insurrectionists go unorbed into a nation's capital, get to the Senate floor of the nation's capital, walk through velvet ropes, follow police direction, take selfies, and don't burn down the damn place. January 6th was a lawful protest permitted by the National Park Service that devolved into a riot. But these Democrat operatives are trying to take Trump off the ballot in blue states like Colorado, where where I am now, and Maine. They want to establish those precedents for the general election to take Trump off of key swing states like Michigan. So President Biden just wins by default, even though Trump has the support of the American people. Obviously, the Supreme Court has to take this case. Obviously, the Supreme Court is going to reverse this Colorado decision, this four to three Colorado decision where four partisan Democrat activist judges on the Colorado Supreme Court took Trump off of the ballot. They say that there was an insurrection on January 6th somehow. They say that Trump incited that insurrection somehow, even though he told his supporters to go peacefully to the to the to the protest. And then they're trying to say that they as a state Supreme Court, instead of a federal court, a federal criminal court has the jurisdiction or the power under Article or Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to remove a candidate. They're wrong on every single score. The Supreme Court is going to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court. It should be nine to nothing. But because of these three Democrat activists on the Supreme Court, it may be six to three. This is such an easy case, but the Democrats will make this complicated. I mean, Mike, isn't it the case that even in the Civil War, um, there was, in the aftermath of it, a uh, desire to bring the country back together? Southern states, of course, were readmitted into the Union. And then Congress passed some provisions that said that former Confederates could, in fact, occupy office, could run for office. So you've got this uh, this clause in the Constitution that the Democrats are trying to sort of resurrect, you might say, and apply to January 6th. Now, I'm assuming that they're going to go before the Supreme Court and say that, A, we made a factual determination in Colorado that this was uh, an insurrection and we made a separate factual determination that Trump incited the insurrection. Now, you know and I know that these, quote, facts are resting on a very shaky foundation. But do you think that the Democrats will try to say to the court, hey, listen, it's not your job to revisit the facts. It's your job merely to apply the law. We have made these factual determinations, and therefore you've got to start with the premise that our factual determinations are correct. Does the Supreme Court have to go along with that? That's what that you're exactly right. That's what the Democrats will argue. They'll argue that this bias Denver District Court Judge Sarah Wallace, who donated to an anti-Trump January 6th pack to chase Republicans out of office, then sat on a January anti-Trump January 6th trial. I sat through all five days of that trial. Remember what this trial was. 
This was an expedited election challenge. It was not a, tri- a real trial. And this judge let in uh, boatloads of hearsay evidence, violated Trump's due process rights under the Constitution. Uh, it was not a real trial. It was an election challenge under Colorado law. And even if this this court were the, 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 the appropriate place to hold this trial, which it's not, he did not get a fair trial. His due process rights were violated. Remember, there is a case from right after Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was enacted uh, over 150 years ago. It's called the Griffins case. And then Chief Justice Salmon Chase clearly held that if you want to disqualify under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to chase out of office, let's step back. The whole reason for the, the, the 14th Amendment, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were the post-Civil War amendments to outlaw slavery, guarantee due process and equal rights to the freed slaves, and guarantee voting rights to the freed male slaves. But after the Civil War, these Confederates were winning office, and they were undermining the post-Civil War uh, uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction effort. They were undermining the Union. So that's why they included Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, to disqualify them, to chase them out of office. Well, then Chief Justice Salman Chase said, in order to do this, you have to have a federal court, you have to have Congress pass a federal criminal statute on insurrection or rebellion with a disqualification provision, which Congress immediately did, and it's still on the books. The updated version of that is still on the books for insurrection or rebellion with a, with a disqualification provision. A federal prosecutor has to charge under that federal cr- criminal statute for insurrection or rebellion. A federal grand jury has to indict. A federal uh, jury has to find the defendant guilty unanimously with with evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. The federal judge has to convict. That conviction must be upheld on appeal. Then and only then can you disqualify under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. You can't just have some biased judge on an election challenge in Colorado along with four partisan Democrat activists on the Colorado Supreme Court, or even worse, the unelected non-lawyer Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows just say that there's an insurrection. It feels insurrectiony. Uh, President Trump incited that insurrection, and so therefore we're just going to take him off the ballot. They think that they're going to save democracy by dis- by destroying democracy by disenfranchising millions of, vo- of voters across America who want to vote for Donald Trump. That's not going to fly with the American people, and the Supreme Court is going to fix this. This is fascinating, Mike. I didn't realize that there is, in fact, a specified kind of legal path. If the, so in other words, what you're saying is the Democrats could have chosen to go down this federal route of charging uh, Donald Trump with insurrection, uh, trying to get a conviction and pursue the Article 3 remedy that way. Why do you think that they decided not to do that? Is it because you do you think that they thought that they have no hope of prevailing that way? So think about it this way. The, the January 6th Democrats and rhinos spent tens of millions of dollars hunting for evidence of insurrection. The Biden Justice Department, including Jack Smith, Biden special counsel, partisan hack, Jack Smith spent tens of millions of dollars looking for evidence of insurrection. The evidence does not exist because A, Trump told his supporters to go peacefully, and B, the riot started before Trump even ended his speech, right? And so, and and C, how many insurrection is going on into a capital? It was a protest 
that turned into a riot. You don't, do we not think that if Jack Smith could have charged for insurrection with this Obama DC judge, Tanya Shutkin, and this 95% Democrat DC jury pool, 99% Trump deranged because even the Republicans and DC hate Trump. You don't think that if they had that evidence, they would have charged. They don't have the evidence to charge for insurrection because it does not exist. Mike, what do you make of the fact that, you know, here we have these Democrats and they seem willing, as you know, you noted, to pull out all the stops. They're doing it in the name of saving democracy, but they they appear to be willing to toss out all the guardrails uh, of our society. Do you think that that is because they see Republicans as somewhat passive and they, you know, they think, hey, listen, we'll try this on Trump because they're never going to try it on us. In other words, what I'm getting at is this. Would it be a, a helpful or a, or a bad thing for the country right now if five Republican states threw Biden off the ballot and basically gave the same reason? Uh, they just essentially that his border policies, his election stealing constitutes two separate forms of insurrection. And so this way, the Supreme Court, with great clarity, sees, guess what? Two can play at this game. If you're going to open the door to allowing states to do this, it's a free-for-all. Uh, do you think that that's a, that's a tactical move Republicans should consider, or are we, are we endangering our democracy too much by being like the gangsters on the other side? I think Republicans are weak and stupid, and I think we need to give Democrats a healthy dose of their own medicine. Democrat, today's Democrats are Marxists. They're not your parents, our parents and grandparents, Democrat Party. These are not liberals who love America and just disagree with conservatives on the best way to get there. They're Marxists. They hate America. They hate free speech. They believe in censorship. They hate due process. They believe in Me Too, justice, presumption of guilt. They hate equality. They believe in equity. These are Democrats who only respect power. That is their goal or God is power on earth. And unless we give them a healthy dose of their own medicine, this will never stop. I mean, a really good example to me of this is the phenomenon that recently happened at Harvard with Claudine Gay, right? I mean, they've been canceling people left and right, or I should say they've been canceling people right and right, everybody right of center, and getting away with it with relative immunity, impunity. Um, it's only when their guys come under the gun that they suddenly discover the virtues of free speech. So it seems to me that what you're saying, and, and I agree, uh, is that uh, in the end, I mean, I guess it raises a larger point about our Constitution and a lot of our documents, that paper documents in the end don't protect us, that the Constitution is a delicate arrangement for distributing power, decentralizing it, uh, pr- providing checks and balances, but those checks and balances only work if the people who are the checkers and the balancers exercise that power and that's something republicans have been reluctant to do why do you think republicans are this way are we just warmed over reaganites who think that the we're still living in 1980 or is there some other reason i think it's because republicans are weak and stupid and they're scared of being called racist and sexist and homophobic and all the other labels that the democrats use against republicans to cow us and i think that republicans need to say you know what? If everything's racist, nothing is racist. Stop letting them cow us with this nonsense and we need to start punching back. I did this during the Kavanaugh confirmation. They thought 
they were going to take out Kavanaugh with these six bogus claims of sexual assault. They thought that we were just going to run and hide. There was no way in hell I was going to let that happen because this was so much bigger than Kavanaugh. If we would have lost that fight, we would have lost the court. We would have lost the Senate. We would have lost the presidency. We would have lost the country. And think about if we're just going to have this Me Too presumption of guilt where any one of our brothers or fathers or sons or uncles can be canceled, destroyed because some, you know, some some radical leftist wants to make a political charge against them and then accuse them of sexual abuse and their life is over without any due process with the presumption of guilt. Hell no. And Republicans need to say to these Democrats, these are republic ending tactics that you're deploying against President Trump. And we need to stop this or we're going to lose our country. And I would say to these country club Republicans, these establishment Republicans, these rhinos, do you really think that this is going to stop with Donald Trump? They're going after Trump, his top aides, his attorneys. They're going after parents outraged by gender chaos and the resulting rapes in high school bathrooms. They're going after Christians praying outside of abortion clinics while they allowed their radical BLM and Antifa and Hamas and abortion activists and trans terrorist supporters to terrorize America. This is not going to end well unless Republicans step up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. Totally agree. And great stuff, Mike. Uh, We've been talking to Mike Davis. He's the founder and president of the Internet Accountability Project, the Article 3 Project, and the Unsilenced Majority. Follow him on the website, mikedavis.substack.com. Mike, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. Got aches and pains. Uh, Debbie and I have a way to make them go away. We started taking Relief Factor three years ago. The difference we've seen in our joints, nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. It's a natural way to fight pain. Relief Factor is a daily supplement that helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains you're experiencing. Whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation. So you feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you. This is their three-week quick start. It's only $19.95. It comes with Relief Factor's Feel Better or Your Money Back Guarantee. So why not give it a try? Visit relieffactor.com or you can call 800-4-RELIEF. Again, that's 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. Guys, if you'd like to support my work, here's a great way to do it. Check out my Locals channel and consider becoming a monthly or an annual subscriber. I post a lot of exclusive content there, including content that's censored on other social media platforms. On Locals, you get Dinesh Unchained, Dinesh Uncensored, and you can also interact with me directly. I do a live weekly Q&A every Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. No topic is off limits. I've also uploaded some cool films to Locals, documentaries, feature films, mine, but also films by other independent producers. 2,000 Mules is 
is up there. And of course, you know about the latest film, Police State, that's up there also. If you're an annual subscriber, you can stream and watch all this content for free. So check out my channel. It's Dinesh.locals.com. I'd love to have you along for this great ride. Again, it's Dinesh.locals.com. I'm discussing C.S. Lewis's um, classic work, The Four Loves. And as I mentioned uh, on Friday, the four loves are as follows. There is storgy or affection. There is philia or friendship. There is eros, romantic love. And then there is agape or agape, which is Christian love or charitable love. And we're now going to talk about the first type, which is storgy, affection. And... um and I'm really amazed at how insightful Lewis is about something just so basic. He's talking about uh, affection, which is love based on just mere familiarity. He begins by saying that this type of love is most um, a type of love that brings us closest to the animals. And this is kind of what he means is that, look, look at the other three types of love. Can animals really be friends? You, have to, you know, I suppose to a certain basic level, you could say like two dogs or pals. But animal friendship is something totally different than, say, human friendship. Obviously, animals are capable of reproducing, but they're not really capable of romantic love in the full sense of the term. And, of course, it's not, animals aren't even expected to engage in charitable love or agape. That is a human phenomenon. But, says uh, uh, Lewis uh, Storgi, uh, which is affection, you see uh, among human beings and you also see it among animals. And then Lewis makes, uh, I think, a very interesting point. He says, listen, just because I'm comparing something to the animals doesn't make it better or doesn't make it worse. This is really important because a lot of times when we're talking about something, let's just say someone engages in a savage crime, a uh, a rape or a brutal assault. We will call it uh, animalistic or bestial, which is an allusion to um, to animals. But think about it. I mean, animals do engage in violence, but it's violence that is by and large circumscribed by necessity. An animal will eat another animal because it's hungry. But animals don't engage in wanton violence. Ever hear of animal genocide? Uh, animals also don't really rape in the full sense of the term. They're, um, uh, by, by rape here, what I mean is not simply animals do engage sometimes in forcible uh, sexual contact, but rape as a phenomenon of a, you know, a rapist lurking in an alley, just raping people as they, as targets of opportunity present themselves. Animals don't do that. And, and Lewis is well aware of this. Now, he goes on to say that storgy or affectionate love is kind of defined by the relationship within a family. Let's say between parents and children, children and parents. And, uh, and Lewis writes this. He goes, affection is the humblest love. It gives itself no airs. People can be proud of being in love or a friendship, but affection is modest, even shamefaced. It has a homely face. And he says, um, it doesn't take any great qualities to develop affection. You have a grumpy old neighbor next door. Every time you see him, he just goes, her. But Lewis's point is, uh, over time, you get used to the guy. You kind of smile at him. He grunts at you. And... Um, and it's you're not claiming that he's the greatest guy in the world. You you can't even specify if you were asked to what his good qualities are. Maybe he doesn't even have any. But even so, he's an object of affection. 
Lewis writes, it usually needs absence or bereavement to set us praising those to whom only affection binds us. In other words, his point is that we don't sit around thinking about affection in the way we think about friendship. Oh, you know, that guy's a really good friend of mine. And wow, I got to make sure that our friendship gets better this year. Or, you know, people in love spend all their time thinking about I'm in love. What is our love like? Back and forth, back and forth. How do you remember our courtship? This was like that. We spend a lot of time talking about ourselves and our feelings. Uh, Lewis's affection is, we still do. <laughs> Uh-oh. Lewis says, um, affection's not like that. You actually don't talk about it. Be, he says, in fact, it would be kind of weird to go around talking about the fact that, you know, I really, you know, I've got us really, I, I really feel at home when I'm hanging out with my neighbor or the guy I, you know, I, um, so, uh, affection is something that it's only when it's gone. The guy dies and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm so used to seeing that guy every day where you take a walk. I see him every Every day, uh, I don't see him anymore, and it's kind of a loss. So, affection would not be affection if it were if it were loudly and frequently expressed. So true. And uh, then Lewis, in very literary fashion, goes: It lives with humble. Private things, soft slippers, old clothes, old jokes, the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor, the sound of a sewing machine. So this is a, this is the, this is Storgi. It's, it's based upon, and the key word here is familiarity, familiarity. Then says Lewis, affection, besides being a love itself, can enter into the other loves and color them. And this is a really important point, which is that we think of the four loves and we're making a, a classification, an intellectual distinction between four types of love, but they can seep the one into the other. So consider, for example, friendship and romantic love. Well, uh, romantic love by itself, I would argue, does not sustain relationships over the very long term. This is not to say that I'm, I'm claiming that romantic love like dissolves or goes away. I'm simply saying it needs to be fortified by other types of love. And so affection or just ordinary familiarity is something that kind of creeps into a romantic relationship over time. So, you know, here at Debbie and I, were coming up on our eighth anniversary. So there are a lot of things about us now. We're just kind of used to. We get our lattes and we sit down and we sort of, we have a little ritual. Uh, and, and that is just familiarity. We fall into a, a routine. And I, I mean this in a good sense, not a rut, but a routine. And the routine itself is, is very comforting. So, um, uh, Lewis says, for example, that when you have friends, initially you choose your friends and you choose your friends based upon things that you have in common with them. So you might make a friend because both of you really love to play chess. And every time you get together, you talk about the chess history and the great champions and what's going on with the world tournament and your own games. And I could have done this better. And your focus is on that, the thing that brought you together. But says Lewis, if you play chess over, let's say, many weeks and months and years. After a while, you notice that, uh, and I noticed this, by the way, I used to play chess with a guy in India, and for about a year, I didn't know his last name. <laughs> I just met him casually through a friend. We started playing chess. We would literally meet, whip out the board, play for like an hour, and then he would like wrap up the board and go home. And one time my mom says, you know, do you know anything about this guy? Uh, and I go, no. Does any brothers and sisters? I don't know. Uh, where does he live? I don't know. I knew literally nothing about him. 
But over time, uh, he would mention, oh, it's my sister's birthday. Oh, you have a sister. And so the point being that after a while, the friendship expands to include things that you didn't originally become friends for. It includes other things you learn about him. He likes to travel. He likes to do this. He likes to read certain things. He's a, he knows a lot about the ancient Indian classics and so on. And uh, so the point being that that is an example, this is Lewis's example of philia, friendship, expanding to include storgi. Storgi is just affection and familiarity. And, um, and so Lewis calls this the blending and overlapping of loves. And he gives another uh, insightful example. He says, he gives the example of the kiss. And he goes, the kiss is present uh, in multiple forms of love, maybe not all, but, but most. He goes in many countries, for example, affection, even affection among strangers is, exper- is, um, demonstrated with a kiss. Look at these two Italian guys or even two Greek guys. They're like kissing each other, you know, just when they've just met. And yet the kiss becomes a sort of affirmation of familiar it's like it's a way of saying we're already familiar we're already um we're already connected to one another and we're we're jumping over all the formalities he says that um of course eros is distinguished by the kiss um but says lewis listen let's remember that even though people who are in love or lovers will kiss each other they don't always do quote lovers kisses they sometimes do affectionate kisses and so the kiss becomes this kind of broad way of signifying and um and uh, expressing love and another thing lewis notes is he says you know i noticed something kind of interesting between romantic love and affectionate love particularly affectionate love between uh, let's say a mother and a child or parents and children he goes in both cases you've got this rather weird phenomenon um and it's the phenomenon of baby talk uh, now, baby talk is a little bit more understandable when you're dealing with actual babies. So, you know, we have our grandchild Marigold. We do a lot of major baby talk. Uh, and it's actually kind of funny because she's reaching the stage where she tends to respond with a little, uh, it's a little, I would call it a gurgly laugh. It's kind of like, it's not really a laugh per se. I don't think she quite knows how to laugh, but it's a chuckle. It's kind of an inward chuckle. And it's a response to various types. And Debbie especially likes to give her little pokes and little, what do you call it when you, when you do the gurglies on her stomach? And she kind of goes, the blow bubbles. And, uh, and then also, um, but it's interesting that adults who are in a romantic relationship, particularly in the beginning, but also continuing, will often use baby talk, uh, and not just baby talk, but will call each, will call each other baby or babe. Uh, so it's kind of an odd thing, but Lu- you know, here's Lewis. He's just, and, I, and this is what I like about this book is that it's, it's insightful at the general and philosophical sense, but it's also very insightful in the observational sense. Lewis will kind of look around and go, well, how do people express these types of love? Uh, and he gives examples where when you're reading this work and hopefully when I'm talking about it, you have sort of a glimmer of recognition, like, yeah, that is in fact the way it is. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.